Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Game Talk Radio. I'm Greg. Today's going to be a little different uh, than my usual podcast. So normally what I do is I try to do a few news stories and tell you my opinion, some of the stuff going on, you know, Game Talk Radio, you know, that sort of thing. And, and while I, I normally that's still my normal uh, routine, today I had a couple... A couple of stories I've been wanting to talk about for a while. Not really stories, but um, rants, I guess. So this week might be a little more ranty than usual. So if that's not really your thing, you know, feel free to tune out. I hope I don't lose you because some of these topics are really good. Now, don't worry. We're still going to educate you. But uh, we're going to be talking about two things. The first we're going to talk about is uh, my take on early access, buying into betas, and um, earning, getting to play a game early because you pay for it beforehand. Uh, and then the second half of this podcast, which it will all be one technical podcast, technically one podcast, if you listen all the way through, the second half is going to be my take on the Ready Player One movie, which I saw recently and as a huge fan of the book, I want to talk about a lot of the comparisons, what I think they got a little bit right, what I think they got a little bit wrong, and what I think they got really, really wrong. Um, personally, I was not a fan, so I'll have to kind of, you know, I, I, I want to kind of share my ex- my theater-going experience with you all as it pertained to the Ready Player One movie uh, last week. And uh, and so that's pretty much going to be it. So it's good, it's going to be the normal podcast length. However, it's really only going to be two stories. We're going to be talking a little, like I said, a little more ranty, a little more. I don't want to say negative, but I think that might be how it comes off. So anyway, stick around if you want to. Um, and if you don't, um, I guess we'll see you next week when I talk about some more, you know, <laughs> uh, news stories about how uh, we have. Uh, you know, Overwatch League players uh, being kicked off teams for sexually harassing and sending gross images to 14-year-olds. So um, <laughs> it's just another day in the news cycle. And yes, that actually did happen. Um, but I think as much as I love talking about the news, uh, I love talking about opinion pieces more, and I think these opinion pieces are a little bit better. So with that being said, let's start the show. So we want to get talking about buying into early access. Now, this is a topic I've had an issue with for a very, very long time. Uh, A very, very long time. Uh, And I don't quite know what to say about this that may not has already been said. But I'm going to go into it, my opinion, see what you guys think, see if you all agree. But this is kind of how I've always looked at it. And I kind of wanted to pass this along and pass along some of the facts and some of the issues I've always had with it. So, I I just yesterday, uh, I turned 37 years old. So I, I've been around a long time. I'm, I've been gaming a very long time. My first system was the ColecoVision, then the NES, and then uh, got my first gaming PC, I think, when I was like in 97. And uh, I remember playing Diablo and StarCraft, and uh, I remember signing up for beta tests. And that's kind of the point of that story was, I remember going to a website early, joining the forums, participating in forum conversations, requesting beta access to to games like EverQuest and World of Warcraft and uh, Anarchy Online and and Final Fantasy XI and all these games. And so you'd go there because who doesn't want to play a game early, right? Like who doesn't want to be first, you know, and who doesn't want to tell all their friends that they're playing the hot new game that someone else has. And this goes back to being a kid and, and everyone had that uncle that worked at Nintendo and you got to play every game that came out before it came out, you know, and, and, there, there's a, a, a pride there. Now that obviously was, those were all lies and, and that was wrong. But with beta tests, you could actually test these games out and you felt like a, you felt kind of like a superstar, you know? Now me, 
I actually use beta tests for what I feel like they were actually designed for. I, I, I go to forums and report bugs and I, I look for things that I think could improve the game. And I say, hey, you know, this is kind of slow. This is kind of chugging. Could you could you do this? Maybe you should do this. Hey, I think this wording in this quest would work better if you said this. And I don't know if any of my recommendations were ever taken seriously, but that it that's how the beta test was designed. Because when you really think about it, especially when it comes to online games, MMOs especially, you're building a world that has to sustain massive populations from day one. So you can't just release a game without testing it. You have to let people in and play around with it, especially games as expansive as MMOs. Think of it as like, you know how every Bethesda game that ever comes out always has a ton of glitches in it, and we just say it's okay because it's a Bethesda game now? Imagine that, and then take all that sort of thing, and then put that in an online setting with a bunch of players doing a bunch of different things. So it's a, it's a very different... It's a very different um, world to live in when it comes to online multiplayer gaming and testing because every studio has internal testers. Then besides that, you typically have external testers like from publishers uh, that want to test out the game. Uh, I had a, I did a, a, an instructor a long, long time ago that uh, told me one time, he worked in the video game industry, and he told me one time that there were... Um, two types of testers, internal testers, which helped make your product good and external testers, which helped stop your product from coming out. Now, the point he was trying to make was that the, the testers hired by the company that makes the game, they're all working together to try to make the game better. The testers hired outside by the publishers are the ones trying to find all the game breaking glitches so they can send it back to the developer and say, look, we're not releasing this, make it, you know, keep working on it, which to be fair in the end is really just a difference of perspective. They're all trying to make the game better. Point being, games need to be tested. There needs to be beta tests. There needs to be alpha tests. There need to be, um, ev at every stage of design, there needs to be some sort of testing. Whether it's developers testing their engine and their assets, reaction in the engine, or if you're testing um, actual gameplay once you're in a playable state. So, you know, so, so for many years I was a beta tester. I beta tested every MMO I could. I put my number, and yeah, part of it was to try the game out to see if I'd like it. And then the other half of it was to try to help improve the game. So somewhere along the line, it started to shift. And so then when you saw like, in the early 2000s, you saw the rise of the pre-order. So that's where basically pre-orders were king. And you had stores like GameStop and, and I worked at Software Etc. in the early 2000s. So Software Etc., GameStop, EB Games, we were really ramping up the pre-order system. That's how they focused all their success. They knew if they got people to pre-order things, they were more likely to come buy it. So they really pushed pre-orders hard. And so then they started uh, the, the, the mass pre-order wave. Well, when you do that, then you have competition in that market between GameStop and EB or between Software Etc., EB Games, whatever, you know, the the, the Babbage's, all those guys. Technically, Babbage's, Software, etc., and GameStop are all the same company. Um, Babbage's, Software, etc., Planet X, and something else. Once they bought Funko Land uh, as a company, I was with GameStop at the time. That's when they became GameStop. They kind of rebranded all the stores under that one uh, brand uh, title. So, uh, so then, then as they started competing over pre-orders, we had. Uh, pre-order bonuses. So that started to be a thing uh, where it's like, well, hey, if you pre-order the game with us, you get a t-shirt. Uh, if you pre-order the game with us, you get this, you get that. And you get all these, you know, you get this poster, you get this. And you're like, okay, that's really cool. I mean, that that's a benefit. Well, when it came to online games like MMOs, typically they started, when you pre-order it, we'll give you access to the beta. So you're like, okay. So, so now if you pre-order a game, when the beta test goes live, I'll be able to test it out, see if I like the game, and anytime I want, if I don't like it, I'll go back to the store, and I'll cancel my pre-order. 
and that's it. And, and so you get that early testing with really no consequences because you're not locked in if you don't enjoy the game. And so, okay, so, so that's kind of where we shifted to. And then you started shifting into the, the digital era of the mid-2000s to, to mid to late 2000s where you've got, if you pre-order, you get an extra gun. If you pre-order, you get an extra level. If you pre-order, you get an extra character skin. If you pre-order, you get this. So that started to get a little bit out of hand, but at any time you wanted to, you could always cancel those pre-orders. It was, it was, uh, you weren't locked in forever. And, and, and then the, the MMOs kept doing it though. They were like, Hey, if you beta test or if you pre-order the game, we'll let you in the beta. And, and at that point, it's pretty much a closed beta, which really it's more like an open beta if you have it for pre-orders because you're just opening the floodgates to anybody who wants to play you're not limiting it at all you're essentially stress testing the servers and that's a good thing you need that phase as well but the game is pretty much complete at that point i mean complete as in almost release not necessarily complete as in many mmos they would keep making content for uh for years after release um but but it, it almost finished in the in the regards of it being in release state release status so you you would play a, a version of the game that was essentially finished is is my point and then all of a sudden around well, let me see what i had the year here because i want to make sure this is right so around 2009 um this is probably the the best known example of of early access was with Minecraft of all games. So there was uh, essentially what was an alpha version of the game was because uh, Minecraft began development in 2009. Uh, and if you don't, Notch is his internet handle, but Marcus Pierce uh, person is the uh, the gentleman who created Minecraft, turned it into the powerhouse, sold it off to Microsoft now, and is now a billionaire. Um, but before that, he was working on this game on the side while, um, while uh, working. Uh, and so then uh, after he got the alpha version and it was popular enough, like he basically was putting it out there and people were trying and saying it was really cool. He decided that he would start selling the game for $15 to access the game. So it was his, his idea to say, if, if you pay 15 bucks, you get, you buy the game and you get to have the game forever all the way until it's completed. Like for years you will get to him, which now Nine years later, I still have access to it. In fact, when I go to the Mojang website, which is where you originally signed up for Minecraft, you can get a free version for Windows if you already have a Mojang account. So it's really cool. Like, And I'm sure that was part of the negotiation when he sold Minecraft, which I, I actually will respect him a little bit for. Um, I also don't like him a lot uh, on Twitter. He's quite, quite the, uh, the, the the troll. He really tries to bait people into weird arguments about uh, social issues, and it's just kind of like he's looking for reactions by being an edgelord. And it, it's really annoying. Anyway, um, Tim is a person, but he started doing this. So he started selling his game for 15 bucks for early access. Now, if I'm trying to remember real quick, I'm gonna try to do some crazy math in my head. Um, I'm going to try to remember when I bought Minecraft originally, because uh, I'm trying to think of the house I was living in. So I've been in my house now for three years, then a year there, a year there, five years. So realistically, I bought that game seven years ago so probably 20 which makes sense because i wasn't a super early adopter so let's say 2010 or 2011 let's say 2011 is when i bought into minecraft at that point uh you you could run around you could break blocks you could build things there was no damage implementation into the game so you didn't take fall damage you couldn't kill things and you couldn't get hit by things it was pretty much just explore 
build things, uh, explore, and then um, bounce, you know, and that was the game. And the, the multiplayer was working, albeit you had to have those stupidest workarounds like NetRanger and all these other apps to help you like with the port forwarding and all this other annoying stuff. If you're on the same network, it was really easy. But if you're trying to play online with other people, it did a lot of dinking around. Uh, but what we had it, uh, a friend of mine, Mike and I, we built a two scale football stadium where one block was one yard <laughs> and so we basically made a football field that was you know 100 yards long 100 blocks long we built a stadium around it. we did all this cool stuff it was really fun it, it brought out the lego lover in me so i have a lot of love for minecraft um back in the day um, i haven't played it in years though and i and getting to the point then is um i haven't played it since it's become the game it is today and so he was one of the first people that did early access essentially he didn't do it through steam he, didn't do it, he just did it on his own um and it was obviously an incredible success. And it, it allowed him then to quit his full-time job and start working on the game full-time and to also hire people to help him develop the game so more people would keep buying in. It was really good. And and at first you think about that, and, and there's a little bit of pride that comes along with that for us as the buyer because we think, well, hey, we're, we're helping with development of this game. If I kick in some money, this guy gets to make the game better, which in, in the end then loops back to me and makes a better game for me which isn't necessarily wrong, except who's going to play the same game from 2011 until 2018? Nobody. <laughs> so I quit playing Minecraft. I mean, I still had been playing Minecraft when they enabled the damage system, which was a very jarring experience for me because you got used to building, you know, what we called, um, like we would just build mineshaft straight down and just jump down the hole. Like it was really easy. And then to get back out, you just poured water down there so you could just climb up or, or build a ladder, obviously. And so that was how we got around. And, and, and unfortunately you couldn't do that anymore when you couldn't take damage. So obviously you, you work around it and you put little pools at the bottom of the escape route so you can still drop all the way down. But it was a different time. You actually had risk um, when you were jumping around and, and stuff like that. Like lava could still kill you, but you know what, but you couldn't like take damage from anything early on and, and uh, you couldn't uh, kill things like to, to get, animal meat he has to have to like make a like you'd have to make a fire near the animal and have them walk through it and they get set on fire then they would die like that's how it was uh so point being though that was an early access game kind of before early access existed on steam because early access as we know did not come to steam until 2013 and so it, it worked out okay i guess in that case and and then unfortunately what people started to realize though and and really steam was the first one to to, to really mass launch this because uh, MMOs, you could argue, have kind of been doing that for years, too, is they release a base game, you buy it, and then they provide content for you over the years, but you also had a monthly fee attached to that. But there was always a semblance of if EverQuest was out and you paid for it, you were going to get an expansion. If WoW came out, you knew you were going to get an expansion. These were big companies making big games, and they were successful. Um, so then, you know, Steam in 2013 uh, uh, launches... Let's see if I can get the thing here... Um, so Steam launches their early access program. And in uh, in early access... Sorry, i got to get this closed out of the way here. Um, so in, in 2013, they designed a program that says, you know what, now what we'll do is we'll let developers upload games that are in a playable state but may not be finished. You can buy into that, uh, and then you can you know, you'll get access to the game. Like you've bought the game for a full price or for whatever price they've set. And you'll have the game when it does eventually release. So then shortly after Minecraft, uh, when I wonder when this launched too, I, I, there were a couple of things I wanted to like have, um, 
like I wanted to have ready and I totally forgot to bring up the tabs. So in, uh, like the first one I always think about is Daisy. Um, Daisy is one of the first early access games I also bought into after Minecraft. Uh, that was early access on Steam December 2013. Um, currently, the game is still in early alpha testing. So imagine that. That's five years the game's been in development. Um, and that's just, and that started off as a mod, and like, obviously it got out of control, and they. You know, I, I don't know. I don't know what the problem is with Daisy. And it was a really interesting game because it was a survival game. There were zombies. It was really difficult. It was one and done. You're dead. You had the players that could kill you that was scary, but then you also had the zombies that were actually a menace. So it was, there were issues, you know, it was, it was tough stuff. But it, it, it went, so 2013, so maybe a year or two after I played Minecraft, I got into Daisy. And it was the same sort of thing. You're like, oh, okay, well, this game's going to get really good. So cool i mean if the game's gonna get really good i'll just play it <laughs> you know i'll play it now and when it's crappy until it gets good and then so as time goes on though the game never really gets good and so you go oh, okay well yeah there goes 30 bucks but whatever and you kind of you get mad and you say okay i'll move on to something else and then there's a game like h1z1 comes out where you can buy into early access to that and it's hey it's a zombie game it's kind of like daisy but it's better and you can you know smedley even came out and said you know this game will let you, if you want to be like Walking Dead with the Herschels having a farm, you can live on a farm. You want to build your own base, you can build your own base, but you can live on a farm. You can just try to live your life in this persistent survival game zombie world. Okay, I mean, it sounds awesome. Of course I'm going to buy that. So you buy into that early access. That game's worked on for, I don't know, maybe a year or so. And then they bring in, you know, Player Unknown before he does Player Unknown's Battlegrounds. And they say, and he's like, oh, hey, let's make this BR mode because I've made it for Arma as an Arma mod or whatever. And they're like, cool, we'll put all of our funds into making this competitive online game and let's not put any funds into the survival mode. So the game that I paid for in early access didn't even end up coming to fruition. It, it ended up getting shelved and, and sacked. And then you have some games like Rust, which was another uh, really good example where when you first played Rust, and I, I enjoyed Rust, but you were waiting for more. Like you knew you were playing in an empty sandbox, waiting for more stuff to come. Every week you'd be like, oh, what's the patch? What's he going to add? What recipe is he going to add? And then eventually, you know, the Rust developer comes out, the guy who did Gary's mod, like he comes out and he says, you know what? Because he actually, I give him a lot of credit for this. He realized something early on is that there's a really difficult cycle when it comes to early access of you, you basically make your game. Then you have a bunch of people complaining about something. So you fix it, but you didn't hear anything from the people that liked the game because they didn't say anything. They were content. They were happy, but you listen to the people who were complaining and you change the game. Then you bring up a whole bunch of new issues. Maybe you fix those problems, but now maybe the people that were happy are not happy. So then they start complaining. Then you fix the game again. And you're constantly, early access is this weird unending cycle of, I'm just going to keep listening to the community and changing the game. Now, a part of me says, it's really cool that as a game player, I get to affect the development of a game. But now I'm starting to feel like with the collective internet, I don't think that power should be in the hands of the collective internet. I want creative game developers to have a concept, bring that concept to life, and present that concept to me. Um, I like it when they listen, and, and then they change something, but in this day and age, it's so easy to, to make your small minority voice sound like a vocal majority that you start you know, complaining and hating things, and then the game starts changing based off of possibly... Um, a, mini a minority amount of feedback. And so uh, 
Rust, he had this really interesting. So he said, basically, I'm going to, I've got my concept for Rust and I'm not going to make core changes anymore. This is the game and I'm going to do things here. I'm going to add things, but this is now the game because he knew it would never leave early access. He knew it would always be perpetually changing the game. Um, kind of another horror story I have about early access right now is uh, Seven Days to Die, which is actually a game I enjoy a lot and I have played a lot. So I don't feel like I got ripped off, but Seven Days to Die is like a Minecraft meets daisy or h1z1 kind of zombie survival but minecraft building um you know and, and it was really really fun i kickstarted that game and i got into the early alpha the alpha it's technically still an alpha after all these years and they released it on ps4 on a disc in alpha state like that's crazy to me like they're selling this flat out as a um, released game like like they're, they're selling it like it's a completed game so you're buying a physical disc which has an alpha on it and then once you buy that so it's like basically physical early access so we, we started off where games were finished and and back in the day i understand you couldn't patch games you couldn't update games so they had to make sure the game was finished before it went live otherwise you had way more expensive cost to actually recall a game and reissue it you know games went live with bugs like that it, it was it was it could be a death knell for a game and so in this day and age of technology where you can patch and update games is great, except what they started doing was they started getting to the point, because if you don't understand how game development works at the end of the phase, basically a game goes gold about one to two months before it releases. That means when going gold means they are ready to send the game off to to be stamped for physical discs if you're going to go that route, or it's going to be the final submission to Steam for getting access to the Steam store, stuff like that. And so it goes gold, but as soon as it goes gold, they are still working on day one patches and updates and fixes. So instead of waiting the extra two or three months to finish the game, then put it in for its one to two month submission, they submit it like they, they kind of bank it and they submit it going, okay, but by the time it launches, we'll have a day one patch that fixes it. Now, part of the problem with that is you don't have everybody with internet connections. So some people are getting this buggy broken game and some people aren't able to update. This real, really sucks. Uh, and then, so, so we kind of went from that, uh, to this new age of, you know, and we went from, Hey, will you help us beta test this game? If you pre-order or, Hey, will you just sign up for a beta test because you're active on our forums? We're not going to pay you to beta test, but your, your prize or your, your reward for helping us is early look at the game and you get to tell your friends about how cool it was. Uh, and unfortunately we don't have that. And, um, we, <laughs> all we have or all we got was, this 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 pay to play scheme that we have now and so they took the feelings that we all had back then that that feeling uh, that rush of i want to play the game early my uncle worked at nintendo and i played the pride that goes along with playing a game before all your friends they took that and they manipulated it and they twisted it into hey you want to play our game early fork it over and that, you know, like I said, when it happened with Minecraft, I was like, you know, this is one guy working part time. I'll fund his development while, you know, I'll fund his development while he's working, because if we can all fund him enough where he can quit his job, this game's going to get good uh, or better, I should say. And and so it made sense there. DayZ, it was like one guy who made a mod and then the people who made the game he modded basically brought him on to work on it. And you're like, OK, it's cool. This guy's awesome. Dean Hall, like I, I respect what he's doing. I want to be a part of it. Um, Nope. Nope. And that game's five years later, still in, uh, you know, alpha phase seven days to die. I think it's been three years or four years still in alpha, you know, and, and every now and then they do an update and they're like, it's alpha 1.1.3.2.1. And you're like, what? just really, you know, uh, th this is, this is acceptable to us. 
as gamers. And so they've manipulated us into that, that feeling we have from wanting to play a game early. So part of the reason I bring this up is because it's getting worse, if you can imagine. So now every single game company comes up with this early access release. So you pay 20 bucks, you pay 30 bucks, and you get access to the game forever. Okay, it sounds like a good deal if the game's ever going to go up to 60 bucks, but oftentimes they don't. I kicked into early access for PUBG when it came out last spring, and that game never dropped in, like never went up in price. So I paid full price for the privilege of playing their game early, even though I was helping them, I was helping stress test the server. And I'm not asking for monetary reimbursement. I'm just saying, you know, and, and again, me playing the game early is my reward for that. But the fact that they're selling the game early to us because they know we're willing to pay just to play the game early. And again, is this my fault? Yes, because I can't control my urges and I take full responsibility for that. But they are preying on that. They are manipulating that. And yeah, if I want to, I can I can put the I can I can put my my uh, my foot down, uh, drop the hammer and just be like, no, I'm not buying any more early access games. But I love playing some of these games early. And if I didn't play early access, half of these games I would not get to play. Uh, and, and I would not get to play for six months to a year. Uh, and by the time I got to play them, everyone else has already moved on. And it's just really, so it's a really sad cycle. So, um, most recently, like I, I bought into deep rock, uh, galactic because that game's really fun. Vermintide two, really fun. Um, which I think Vermintide two is technically released now, but they did the same sort of thing. You can buy an early, a game called dauntless. Um, I, I'm so mad about this because this was before they announced monster hunter world, uh, because I was just jonesing for a monster hunter type game dauntless offered that it's kind of like monster hunter but with fortnite style graphics and then throw in these random loot crates and stuff for cosmetic items and such so there's all you know and i bought into that and they had a different tier you could pay like 80 bucks to get into the alpha or you pay like 50 bucks to get into the beta or 30 bucks to get into the regular game when it comes out and i'm like you know, and I stupidly bought in so I could get into the alpha test, which basically was like two or three weeks beforehand. So I dropped a bunch of extra money. It was stupid. And it was my fault. I did something stupid. I take full responsibility. But then looking forward, like we have to, we have to figure out like, like how to buck against these kind of trends. We're obviously pushing back against loot boxes right now. You're seeing a lot of companies dropping loot boxes or being less abrasive with loot boxes because they got out of control. Early access, I think, needs to do the same thing. We need to somehow rein them in. And unfortunately, with Steam being the huge platform that they're all available on, that, I think, is where they need to do more work. Like, I think Steam needs to evaluate its early access games and do just a purge of these games that aren't, um, you know, that aren't moving along. And so here's part of my issue as well, is we have uh, games that basically were in early access and then never came out or never finished, Right. Probably the most deplorable of them all is going to be, and, and a lot of people ask me why I have so much hate for Tim Schafer, and it's not that I really hate him. I, I hate that he gets a lot of credit for making Maniac Mansion when he didn't, and I also get irritated by the fact that uh, he went to Kickstarter with a lot of his projects because I feel like he could have gotten publisher rights from a lot of different companies. He didn't have to... He didn't have to go to Kickstarter to get his funds. back. That was back when Kickstarter, I really felt like, was used just for the small guy like it was it was a fun to help the little guy not meant for these big companies to come along um so anyway he he starts double fine studio which you know they've done a lot of games that people like it's great no problem but they did a game called space base df9 and space base was an, a really interesting take because they uh they 
you know, when they first talk about early access, they talk about you're going to, here's a quote, you're going to enjoy continued development, hundreds of thousands of dollars of customers uh, um, buying into their products. Um, but after they got the money, it stopped. And so th this, this is what frustrates me about it. And this is ultimately where I'm going with this is that they have no obligation to you to finish the game. They have your money already, right? They have your money. There's no obligation for them to finish that game because they, they're funding the development. All they have to do now is use that money to get someone else to buy the early access. Then they use that person's money to buy someone else into the early access until the game keeps going. So this was uh, this was a couple of quotes from Double Fine Um you know, from Tim Schafer that really irritated me. So here's the first one quote. We wanted to keep working on space base for years, but space base spends more money than it brings in. And that's just not something we can afford to do anymore. Yes, obviously. End quote. Yes, obviously. Um, you can't have a game that's losing money. So then maybe you shouldn't have done early access in the first place. If you didn't know that that game had the model to be successful from the beginning, you should have done early access and taken all those people's money or, or you should have refunded it, uh, like they did with Paragon. Now I know on uh, Epic is a much different company than Double Fine. Epic has a lot more money, a lot more streams of revenue than Double Fine does. But Epic, when their game tanked and it was dead, they refunded money who kicked into it uh, in the game Paragon. So you know, there's there's what I feel is responsible and irresponsible ways to handle situations like this. Tim Schafer's always been someone who basically goes, "That's the industry," and if he burns you, he's like, "Hey, sorry, that's the gig," and then he moves on to his next game. And it frustrates me. And he's he's gonna do that till the end of his career, and it's really, really, really frustrating to me. Um, uh, and so this was another quote from him: "Quote some of its early." sales numbers indicated that it might last but slowly things changed and became clear that this was looking like a year and a half of production instead of five or so years which with each alpha release there was hope that things would change but they didn't we put every dime we made from space space back into space space and then we put in some more obviously spending more money than we were making isn't something we can afford to do forever so as much as we tried to put off the decision we finally had to change gears and put space space into finishing mode and plan for version 1.0 so he talks about his five-year plan there. Like, okay, so you had a five-year plan of just adding things and being an early access. That's, that's garbage. You know, like you should have an early access plan for six months to a year, beta test, stress test, and then get the game out in full release. Like this whole, we're going to leave it in early access until it makes us enough money thing is total crap. It's really annoying. Uh, and and, uh, and then he, he admits, quote, there should have been more communication to the players about the state of the game, and we apologize for that. But for us, it was never clear whether development was going to end because we always hoped that the next update would turn it around and allow us to extend development. So I suppose ultimately the answer was we always had hope we weren't going to end it until the end. And so that's just really surprising to me because how do you know game development? How do you, how do you be in game development that long? and you have a game that's not doing well, how do you think an update to that game is going to change anything? No matter how good, unless it's a huge, massive change to the game, how is it going to change anything? Um, and then, uh, so this is what kind of irritated people the most, was because then, uh, here's what they said. Um, <laughs> after they announced that they were basically stopping development, 
Quote, as for what will be added between now and the 1.0 build, new features will be aimed at providing the complete experience you'd expect from a non-early access game. A tutorial mode to smooth out early gameplay a bit and help new players learn the basics, and a goal system lets you work towards concrete objectives. That was well over a month's worth of pure bug-fixing work and final polish. We're also pleased to announce we'll be releasing the game's full source code a short time after 1.0, which will allow the community to create potentially far-ranging mods that add content, new features, and change some of the fundamental game behaviors. We'll of course be sticking around a bit for bug fixing and support, but any new content for the game will now be in your hands. We're eager to see what people do with this game. So they're saying that, uh, well, because we're not going to support the game anymore, we're going to release the source code so that the community can keep the game alive instead of us, you know, the people you paid to do it. So again, they had no responsibility to the people that bought into early access. And then they, they squirt out a finished copy of the game, which was nothing like they promised. And so this is the issue with the early access. And what what can we possibly do about it? Um, I don't know. I think Steam has to come in and maybe have more of a vetting process for early access games. Um, and there have been really good early access games like Starbound comes to mind, Terraria, um, a bunch of a bunch of really good ones I've played in early access are fine. But again, are these games that have to do early access? Do you have to pay? Or at the very least, can we get a reduced rate on the game, which does sometimes happen? But sometimes you pay full price just for the, for the, uh, you know, for the privilege to play their broken, buggy, featureless game, you know. And then what happens is you play this game for a few months at best, and you go, yeah, it's just not updating fast enough for me. I'll come back to the game later. But do you ever go back to that game? Probably not. I don't because there's a new game on the horizon that I want to try and there's a new game that's out, you know? And so you end up going, not going back to these games and you end up not playing these games when they reach their potential. If they ever do Minecraft, for instance, I stopped playing Minecraft years ago and all the things you can do in it now, it's almost a totally different game. It's like so full and full of things to do. I understand why it's such a powerhouse. When I played it, you couldn't eat food and you couldn't kill enemies, you know, so I didn't get to experience Minecraft the same way other people did. And so it's very strange when a game takes that long to develop. And then it's a game like that that's constantly in development as opposed to a game that's finished and then just adds tweaks. And so I think that's why there's something to be said about console offline games still being a thing. Like I just played through Nino Kuni 2 and I love the fact that that game was made start to finish and then released for me to play. <laughs> and I finished it. I'll get the same experience as the guy who plays it in six months because the, the core experience is still there uh, as opposed to it uh, radically changing. So uh, that's kind of my rant about early access. I don't know what really to do to fix it. I, I, I like to normally be a, a problem solver, and I really don't know how this ever changes unless we stop buying into early access and, and we start bucking that trend. But I don't think we're ever going to change. I don't think um, people are ever going to stop wanting to be the kid who had the uncle who worked at Nintendo. Uh, and then so, secondly, now, th this is what I wanted to get to next. So this is the half of uh, the podcast talking about my viewing experience with the movie Ready Player One. If you don't want any spoilers, I'm going to go through the whole movie. So if you don't want any spoilers, do not listen. Um, please shut it off now because I don't want to ruin anything for you. There's plenty of spoiler tags of this if you're watching this video on YouTube, but I'm going to say it again. Spoiler alert, mega spoiler alert. I'm going full dive into the movie. Um, not that there's really much to spoil, but whatever. Um, it, uh, I'm going to spoil it. I'm going to talk about the whole movie. So you've been warned. Spoilers, you've been warned. Spoilers, you've been warned. Spoilers, you've been warned. Um, so Ready Player One, the movie. 
uh, came out a few weeks ago, and I watched it. Went in the theater and saw it with my wife and a good friend of mine, Adam. And uh, all of us uh, have read the book, I think. I know Jen and I have. I'm not sure if Adam has, actually. I don't know. Um, in any case, uh, we watched the movie, and it was, to me... Um, Okay, let me start by saying this because I don't want people to watch this, hear my first comment there, and then hate it. So let me start with this. People will like this movie for the same reason that I liked the book. It was a really fun movie that 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 is in our universe, talking about video games and the potential of VR and online MMOs and, and online interactions. So it spoke to us in a certain way. So the same reason people like the movie will be the same reason I love the book. I don't think it's a bad movie. I'm... Again, if you leave a comment saying that how could you hate this movie because or how could you think this movie sucks, I don't think this movie sucks. I did not have a good experience with it because I read the book, and unfortunately the movie just completely skewed off the book way too far for me to um, be able to wrap my head around it. So again, if you like the movie, I'm very happy for you about that, actually. I don't want to bring misery to other people. I'm not happy if you're upset. If you like the movie, awesome. I'm very happy for you. I didn't, unfortunately. And that's what we're going to talk about. <laughs> um, so let, let's kind of start with um, my history of the book. So I, re I read the book a couple years ago. And um, this is embarrassing to admit, but I'm just going to be honest with you guys. I don't read a lot of books. Um, I have a, a problem with attention, uh, paying attention. If I start reading a book and it's like a boring part where they're explaining something or uh, going into detail about how a house looks or a character looks, I often start to skip words, not consciously, subconsciously, I'll start skipping words and then skipping sentences and then skipping paragraphs looking for like something exciting. And that's crazy. And, and that's really really, really frustrating for me because I don't get to read a lot of books and I know there's a lot of books I'd love to sit down and read. Um, and unfortunately, I, I, I have a hard time with it. And not that I have a hard time reading. I'm pretty good at reading, actually. Uh, but I have an issue with keeping my attention span on the book. So when I got Ready Player One, uh, I've done things I haven't done in years. I came home from work one day. I sat down on the couch. I turned off the television and I read a book in a quiet room. I don't think I've done that since I was in third grade. Uh, I really, I, I can't, um, I, I don't have a, rem a memory recollecting doing that ever since I was a little kid, maybe like when I was, when I had like my little scholastic, uh, like I bought the little, you know, battery powered reading light so I could sit in my bed and be like, I'm reading a book. I'm supposed to be in bed, but I'm up late reading a book. Um, and that was probably third, third grade, third or fourth grade. And, um, so what was that 30 years ago, <laughs> 29 years ago? So this book grabbed me and it didn't let go. Um, I know other people have made this comparison, but I think it's very accurate is this book is our generation's Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. It's it's fantastical. It's uh, it's it's endearing. It's it pertains to things that we would find engrossing this online world. Uh, it's it's um, and it made a bunch of references to when we were growing up in the 80s. Uh, certain people, obviously, not everybody growing up in the 80s, but being someone who was born in 81, I actually grew up in the 80s. A lot of people are like, oh, I'm a 90s kid because they, 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 they were born in like 95. And you're like, well, yeah, you're a 90s kid, but you weren't really experiencing the 90s in a time where you were able to, you know, be a part of the 90s. I was, you know, I was 
five, six, seven, eight, nine years old through the eighties. And then, so I'm, I think more of a nineties kid just because I was joining my, my adolescence and growing into my teen years in the nineties when all the pop culture stuff would have pertained to me. But, uh, so I wouldn't consider myself like an eighties kid technically. Like I, I, because I was so early in the eighties, I probably was, but like, I consider myself almost more of a, a, a late eighties, nineties kid, just because that's when I was like conscious of the things I, I, and that's when I was remembering things. And that's when I was from five years old to, you know, 18 years old. And so I read this book. It completely grabbed me. Uh, I told everyone I knew about it. My older brother who reads less than I do, and I, that's pretty much less than nothing, also sat down and read it, which was incredible. And he loved it. And, uh, I told it to everybody, my mom read it, my aunt read it, like a bunch of people I knew read it because I talked about it so passionately. I lent the book to many people. Uh, I have like one of the first print hardcover ones, which I don't know if that's worth any money. Probably not. Don't care. Uh, I'm going to keep it, but it's super cool. And I liked it a lot. Um, with that being said, the pe- the complaints that people have about the book are very valid. Um, a lot of people, um, I don't want to say book snobs because I don't want to rush to judgment. There are a lot of people that read a lot of books, though, that think it's a terrible book. I don't think it's a terrible book. Obviously, I have a very soft spot for it because I loved it, but I'm not saying it's it's not a Christmas carol, okay? It's not a tale of two cities. Um, it's just a, a really fun read. It's your summer action movie in book form. And there were even times when I was reading it, and there are some really cringy lines in that where he starts describing his his uh, DeLorean. It's got the license plate Ecto One, and and like he's like, there's one sense where he has like ten '80s references in it, and I'm just like, okay, dude, like move on, you know? Like I don't, yes, you're in the '80s, I got it, move along. Um, so you know, even I cringed at parts of the book, you know, um, especially, uh, the audio book, which I've listened to a couple times narrated by Will Wheaton. And he tries doing like, whenever he talks about Dido, uh, he's always like, Daito. and he like, he tries to do this weird Japanese accent and it's just really off putting. And, and so you're like, okay, dude, whatever. Um, so it's not, it, you know, there were some really cringy stuff. I fully agree with that. What I won't agree with, um, because as a, as a hater of big bang theory myself, again, if you like it, don't care. Um, People often refer to this as the Big Bang Theory of books. Uh, I think that's very disingenuous. I don't think that's accurate at all because I find Big Bang Theory to be a very disingenuous show. Like it's it's made by people who who think they know what it was like to be like a nerd. Like they saw they they're looking at it from the outside in. Um, you could tell that Ernest Klein does did grow up in the eighties. He loves this and has a passion for this subject. Whether you agree with him as a person, if you like him or not, he seems to have a passion for that that time frame. Um, because he wrote a second book called Armada, which was basically the same thing, which is now going to be made into a movie, uh, where it's about a a first person shooter online game that was training people for the military, uh, book, not very good. Um, so don't, uh, don't feel like you have to rush out and get it. I thought it was terrible because the eighties references were even worse in that than they were in ready player one. And it was less interesting and it was very, um, very hokey. Yeah. Very hokey. But uh, not the Ray Player wasn't one wasn't a little hokey. However, that being said, I kind of want to do a bunch of the big comparisons and kind of run through the movie and part of the issues I had. So main issue right out the gate is uh, I, I love the stacks. Um, actually, that that was really good. You know, they showed how in the future people have to live in to save space. People live in trailer homes that are built into these huge high rise like frames, and they call them the stacks. And they're basically homemade skyscrapers out of trailer homes. Like that, I could see that happening. Like that's actually like that was that was interesting because I could see that being a thing. And uh, so that was good. You know, they kind of set up the thing. You know, I I didn't like how they did Halliday. Uh, in the book, he definitely seemed like he was antisocial, but they made him seem almost like he had a mental illness or something in in the 
in the movie. Like the way he talked was like, like mumble mouth, like, well, uh, uh, I guess movies are pretty fun. Like that's him in like the movie. It's just like, okay, I guess, um, that's not how I pictured him. So it was different. Um, but, uh, so, so right from the get go though, they're setting up the story about how, you know, there was this contest, he died, everything. Okay. No problem. And, and since I'm on the topic, um, in the book, when he's, uh, when the video pops up saying he died and it announces to everyone that there's a contest for his, for his stake in the company, one of the songs playing is dead man's party. And it's makes sense because, you know, it's like an 80s song, dead man's party. This movie did not, it, while it used music from that era, it didn't use the music from the book, which I think would have been just fine. So I don't know why they didn't use the, a little more obscure music, but could have been a little more in line with the themes because the music that he said was playing in the book was thematic with what was happening. Um, again, a little complaint. Don't really care. It's music. Who, who cares? Moving on. But initially they talk about how one day someone like found a portal and then ever since then, the portal opens up every day and there's a race to win the copper key. So this is five years after people have been hunting for this forever. And um, so you, um, that really doesn't make any sense. In the book, it had also been five years and most people had given up on the hunt. It wasn't just magically someday it came up where there's a big race that nobody could win. It, uh, you know, it, um, it, it, it was something hidden. And and here's one of the main core points of that part of the story was Halliday, when he created the contest, wanted to make sure that anybody could win. And so the first key was located on the school planets because everybody had access to the schools. It was free to travel there. It didn't cost any money. As opposed to the movie, which makes it seem like to win the copper key, you had to have a really nice car or have a bunch of money for gas. In fact, Wade has to start at the back of the line because he needs to wait for other players to get killed and then pick up their coins off their dead bodies so he has enough money for gas. So uh, that was a big theme issue right from the get-go. Um, where... Uh, where it was a very important theme that he he discovered that Halliday would have allowed everyone to have access to it. So he brings up the, the school planets, brings up the D&D module that he already knew was a part of the hint, and then he's able to put two and two together. Now, the other part about that, and so he ends up having to go to this cave, um, and he has to end up playing a lich in a game of Joust. Now, I understand having two people stand in an arcade machine playing Joust isn't going to translate really well to the big screen. Okay, I get it. You couldn't have him playing Game of Joust. But why not? Why couldn't you change it? Instead of a race, why couldn't you change it where he had to, um, like, they were actually in the game, right? They're each riding ostriches, and they're, like, going at each other, and he's got to beat this lich by, you know. Now, again, that wouldn't really fit because part of the reason Wade was actually able to beat him at Joust is because he was a tried and true gunter, which meant he looked at everything that Halliday said he ever played, and he played it till he was the best at it. He watched every movie that Halliday ever watched until he knew every line of it. He watched every TV show. He listened to every song. He knew everything and loved everything that Halliday loved. That's why he was able to figure this all out. And they just really gloss over that. Like they act like he just goes to a museum where they tell you everything about Halliday's life, which technically in, in the book is more of like a, like a, an online database where you would go and search things and search video clips. It wasn't like a virtual museum, but that's fine. I actually thought that was a fine update to the movie. So then that, that's a big issue that not only was it just a race that didn't happen in the book, it was also it defeated the purpose of the first key being able to be gathered by anyone. Uh, and then the fact that you just drive backwards and then he skips the whole race, like kind of doesn't make sense, right? Like what if 10 people at once did that? You know, I mean, it just, it wouldn't have worked. And he's like underneath the level while it was visually, 
you know, appealing and looked kind of cool. It didn't make any sense from, you know, from the story standpoint of it, it meant to be for anyone to be able to get. So now in the book, and I understand why they didn't do this, but in the book, not only do you get a key by doing a challenge, you then have to open a gate, which is another challenge. And I was stand, I understand for the movie that's redundant. So you just had you get the key and you move on to the next key. And then when you have all the keys, you win. Like that, that makes sense for movie flow sake, like totally cool. Um, and so now we've, we've, we've moved on to like the next key is, is apparently at some dance planet where this they Halliday and his, the girl that he liked, uh, had their first dance or wanted to go dancing. But in the book, that's actually Maro Ogden, um, Ogden Maro, basically who is Simon Pegg's character. Uh, it was his birthday and he threw a huge birthday party and he invited, all the players that were in the high five, the top five of the leaderboard, he invited them to his birthday party and then they get jumped by the IOI to try to kill their characters so they could get ahead of them on the leaderboards. Cause once you're dead, like you lose everything. That's kind of one of the core themes. Um, so then you have, uh, which, which was another issue I had to bring up right away was the high five. They acted like these five people were all friends and knew each other right away. The only people that were friends were Parzival, who I'll now refer to as Z. So Z and H uh, those two were friends. They used to hang out in H's basement all the time and talk culture and like still do the hunting and everything. And then you had Daito and Shoto who were actually brothers. Now that's a quick little issue I had was in the movie, they call them Daito and Sho. What I don't understand is the reason they're called Daito and Shoto is because it references the long sword and the short sword when it comes to Japanese uh, weapons. So it made sense that the big brother and the little brother were called Daito and Shoto. Uh, why they called it Sho? I don't know if it's because the name was too similar to Daito, but it's such a little thing. Just leave it in there for cry, you know, for crying out loud. Like it doesn't change anything. Just leave it in there. So again, little change they had to make. The bigger change though was about how the high five was like this group of people that were all working together when in fact they did not work together. Um, they, and they glossed over lightly the, the, the kind of break between Artemis and, and Z because you know, and Z and her were definitely getting closer. They were spending a lot of time together and then they realized they weren't spending as much time on the hunt. And Z actually stopped caring about that. He was like, I don't care about the hunt. I care about you. I, I love you. I love who you're. And she still cared about the hunt a lot. And she did care for him, but she realized like, there's more important things. I need to win this money. So like I can make the world a better place. That's what was motivating her. Um, and there was a much bigger breakup. There was a point where they basically split off and he gives up the hunt and he can't really, he doesn't want to anymore. And he gets passed on the leaderboard. Hi kitty. Um, he gets passed on the leaderboard and stop putting your tail in front of the camera. Come on, bud. Um, and, uh, so he, he, he gets past the leaderboard and then everyone's passing him. And then finally, uh, and he, you know, he had kind of blew off H for a while because he was hanging out with the girls. So then H is like, you know, tosses him a bone at the end and says, Hey, now we're, now we're even. And he tosses him a bone on where to get like the, the next, the next key or the next gate that had been missing so so that and that gets him back in the game it gets him motivated um and then there's this really kind of strange part in the book which is a little unrealistic but after so well let me back up here so the other real big issue i had was the character in the movie who is known as irock he's the big like hooded looking monster guy who's like the mass level player and he helps sorrento get these certain items well in the book irock is a nobody he just hangs out in h's basement and the only part of the story that he was important to was the fact that he let it slip to somebody or he was, he overheard someone talking or he talked in the basement about how 
uh, he went to school with Z. And then once they knew that Z was a school kid, Sorrento hacks like the school, finds the username, connects it to the actual person's name. That's how he finds his address and his name. And that's how he's able to blow up the stacks and like potentially kill um, Z's family and then like destroy the stacks and everything. So, so otherwise that character doesn't exist. And, and while it, it was that, that actor is funny in his comedy style of being that kind of weird, awkward comedy style. It's funny, but it, to me that character doesn't even exist. And it seemed like it was pointless. You know, like they just had to have another villain for some reason, like Sorrento wasn't enough. Um, but getting back to it. So the, the high five, they're not really, they weren't friends. In fact, they were all people who had made vows to not guild together on purpose and they wouldn't guild with anyone. They were solo gunters, egg hunters. And, they were solo, but H and Z obviously were together. Then Artemis and Z and H were kind of, you know, a little bit of a thing. But Daito and Shoto were very against working together with them at all. And then what happens is um, Sorrento finds out who Daito and Shoto are in real life and ends up killing uh, Daito. So the younger brother Shoto ends up, I, I, I don't, by the end, I believe he does come then to America. Like he flies out um, because they were actually located in Japan. So his So his brother gets murdered <laughs> like 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 in a, a suicide you know like he gets thrown off his his balcony or whatever and uh so that kind of brings the group together like they had to solidify and come together um in the movie they touch upon this a little bit but they have artemis be like captured into like a work program in the book it's actually parzival who purposely goes in there so that he can hack the system and get the footage of sorrento uh and and having his people actually kill um, blow up the stacks and kill Daito. So like that was, um, that was kind of the, the point of it all, you know, like that was, that was why he went to the work center. And then eventually he breaks out H picks him up. That's when you, it's revealed, you know, that H is, uh, is, is a, is a, a black woman instead of a, a white man who he thinks he's been talking to the whole time. So it's a really cool flip, you know, and, uh, there's really cool stuff. And then at that point to do the final key and everything, they get invited to go to, uh, Ogden Morrow's house and they all drive out there because he's got these super setup rigs and everyone gets to meet. That's actually the first time that Z meets Artemis. Like there's no resistance. There's no underground like we're all working together to try to stop Sorrento. Like that. that's not in the book at all. That's not a theme of it because that wasn't the point. It wasn't a resistance versus the man. It was it was a really touching individual story. Like what is what can you do as an individual to to change the world not you know be part of a resistance team. Um, the, uh, and then the end, uh, was kind of similar, I guess, uh, in the regards, like the last key, they had kind of this last planet and they had to get to this last door and you do have like this item that's used to wipe out everybody in the planet. And, uh, in the movie, um, the, the robot Butler guy gives Z a quarter for like winning a bet, uh, which actually I was okay with this part cause it made sense in the movie. But what kind of happens in the book is, uh, Z is searching for clues on this arcade planet and he purposely gets to like this, um, Pac-Man screen where he gets to the, the kill screen and he gets to that. And then he's like, Oh, it w he thought it was going to unlock a gate or a key and it didn't, but it did give him a quarter and he had no idea what it was for, but he was like, Oh, it's a, it's a quarter. Okay. Well, I don't know. I'll keep it. It says mad. You know, he keeps the item. And, uh, so that's kind of where that came from in the book. Obviously a little bit different to set that up. Movie makes sense. He couldn't do it. No problem. Um, at the end of the game though, when they have all the people trying to play it, which Atari game it is to win, that's loosely tied in because obviously the game adventure is a big deal. Um, you know, to the story, uh, and everything. So it was fine that that had something to do with, you know, what was going on with the end of the end of the movie. Um, but also one of the themes that they don't explore at all at the end was, I, 
um, and I, I might be remembering this wrong, so hopefully I'm not, but I, cause I haven't read the book in like a year or two, but I want to say like they had to have like to get to the final gate or something. They had to have like all three keys had to be entered at one time. So there was something to be said about like you couldn't do it by yourself. You had to have friends. You had to have the people on this journey with you. Like that was another one of the themes, you know, um, and then at the end, you know, like when they're driving around and he's in the suit, like in the movie at the very end, Sorrento's chasing him. And then he's, he opens up the door and he's about to shoot Parzival, who's in the, in the Oasis at the time. And he sees that he's like holding this like glowing egg or he's about to get the egg and he just can't shoot him. It's so beautiful. And there's all these people cheering stuff, but that doesn't make sense to me. Like Sorrento at that point has everything to lose. Like he would have just shot him dead right there. Like, like if he went that far, he wouldn't have stopped there. You know, that's just not that character. Um, but anyway, so I'm, I'm kind of done, I guess with it, but I, my closing with, with the comparison was that this was a really disappointing experience for me. Not that it's going to be a disappointing experience for you or anybody else. It just, for me, it was, you know, and I was really, really bummed out, uh, by this whole thing. And I, I don't, I tried to have checked expectations, but of course I was excited to go see it. I went and saw it and it was just really disappointing to me because of how different it was from the book. But that's the reason why. Not that it was a poorly made movie or poorly acted movie. It just wasn't what I wanted. I didn't think it was very good. Um, and so, you know, I, it was an overall disappointing experience. But those were some of the major changes from the book to the movie that pulled me out of it. Like, there's a lot of little stuff they changed. Like, you know, at the end, instead of, uh, there was no Iron Giant in the book, but that was a great addition. Iron Giant's awesome. Um, they don't have a, a Gundam that fights Mechagodzilla like they do in the movie. It was Ultraman. Who cares? It's like, like, I get the idea, you know, it's, it's same, same theme sort of, you know, but there were a lot of things really lost in the feel of the movie. Um, but I know a lot of people really liked it. And I'm happy they liked it. If you liked it, I'm happy you liked it. I really am. I just unfortunately had a really bad experience with it. And it sucks, but it is what it is. So, with that being said, we're going to move on to uh, my game of the week because it's part of the podcast where I talk about a game that you should play if you haven't already. And I didn't think ahead again, so I'm going to do this on the fly. Um, let's talk about Jaws. Jaws. <laughs> so... Uh, this game is made by LJN, which is notorious for having really, really crappy games. Uh, movie licensed, comic book licensed games, really terrible stuff. This game is not terrible, though. Uh, this is totally a playable game. It's kind of fun. You start off where you're on a boat, uh, and you have to go back port to port, uh, buying different ship upgrades, so you have enough to be able to fight. Every now and then, Jaws will attack you, and you go to the, like a side-scrolling like ocean scene. And I'm getting a reflection from the box on the uh on the monitor and it's like me and me and me um so anyway i'll put that down so you have like these side scrolling sections where you have to you can collect seashells which are the currency uh but if you get hit and you die like you lose like either all of them or at least half of them and you have to save up a lot of them to upgrade your ship and to get new weapons and stuff so it's kind of a dangerous game but you're going around you do that and you're, you're killing sharks doing all this stuff and then sometimes you fight jaws uh and then you can just you basically just shoot him enough to repel him or just to get away uh you're slowly working he's got like a really long life bar you're slowly whittling down and then as you get more and more powerful then eventually you have the final fight with him and you can beat him but it's actually really fun like the controls are good it's it's a playable game not like pretty much everything else that ljn does so it's actually kind of fun um and with that said as always i appreciate everyone for listening and watching if, if you made it this far obviously if you listen to us on itunes or soundcloud we'd love for you to subscribe and follow um 
and also go to our YouTube channel, which you can go to droprate.life. That'll pull you to our YouTube channel or go to YouTube and search for the drop rate. And uh, that's where you can see all this content uh, video wise. If you caught this online, on YouTube and you haven't subscribed yet, hopefully uh, you like what you see here. Uh, and if you like my content, there are three people that work on this channel. If you like my content, always look for the little dude in this corner, the little, uh, the little Greg Sprite in that corner. Um, but as always, I really appreciate everybody. Thank you all for watching and listening. Hope you have a great day. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye.